Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the federal government failed to spend tens of billions of dollars in the last fiscal year on promised programs and services, including new military equipment, affordable housing, and support for veterans. Just what's going on here? We'll talk about it. Members of the Ontario Liberal Party have signed a letter asking Green Party leader Mike Schreiner to consider running for the Liberal leadership. Mike Schreiner will join us to talk about that possibility. And Canadian universities are conducting joint research with Chinese military scientists. Are they allowed to do this? And is it such a good idea? It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Federal departments have failed to spend about $38 billion on promised programs over the last year, as reported by the Globe and Mail. This is a report that comes out every year about, uh, well, it's a comparison, basically. Okay, here's what the government said they were going to do, you know, when they present their budget. And here's how much they actually spent. And there's a huge difference here. Why does something like this happen? And, and exactly what are the implications? Well, to try to sift through all this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Moshe Land, who was the senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. We're talking about a huge difference in numbers here uh, to, to the tone of, uh, well, uh, $38 billion. Uh, you know, from what the finance minister said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's where we're going to spend our programs. And this is the bottom line at the end of the year. Well, here's how much we actually spend. Why is there such a difference here? Well, I mean, that's important lesson number one when we have a federal budget, right, is that it's merely an intention to spend. It doesn't mean that they actually did spend or are going to spend uh, or even plan to spend, right? So uh, it's not surprising that there's this disconnect. And like you said, it's a report that comes out every year. Uh, just the $38 billion is maybe the eye-popping number here because that's the largest amount that's ever had this disconnect between what was planned and what actually happened. So, uh, again, so the budget, which we think is, okay, here's the government's, but it's really just a list of promises, isn't it? And, uh, is, is it economically feasible? Is it viable for them to actually allocate this money and get it out the door? Because that always seems to be the criticisms of just about every government, isn't it? Okay, you know, get the money out the door. And they don't seem to do a very good job of that sometimes. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny that we're having a conversation about a government that failed to spend money and somehow this is a problem. <laughs> Normally, the conversation is that they did spend money or they spent more than what was promised. But, you, you know, your your word there was a, a good one. It was it was they allocate this money, right? So just because the money is allocated doesn't mean that the people who uh, are the recipients of this money will actually show up and use it. So one of the headline items there, of course, was that there was a lot of money that was set aside for COVID. And Remember that when you're budgeting, this is budgeting for the upcoming year. And so uh, this money that was not spent in the last fiscal year was allocated in the previous fiscal year, which was near the height of the Delta variant, which seems like ages ago. Uh, and so there was probably a lot of money that was set aside, not anticipating the way that the world was going to move. And so when that failed to be needed, it shows up in this report as money that was allocated but not spent. It, does this happen? I mean, we're talking about this today because this report just came out. Uh, but I can remember a discussion, I guess it was about 10 years ago, uh, the last year with Stephen Harper's government, where the same kind of report came out and showed that they hadn't spent all the money that they had talked about. And uh, I'm not going to say it was a scandal, but I mean, a lot of people were upset about this. So we just kind of, oh, that's interesting. Uh, are we over that right now? Do we just understand that this is really how government works? Yeah, um, I, I mean, it's still worth combing over why was this money not spent, right? And if there's a reason for it, uh, then fine. That That's nothing wrong with that. Uh, allocating money as a precaution is something that you and I and every other Canadian does all the time, right? We set aside money just in case we're going to need it. And if we don't use it, 
uh, we don't get criticized. It's just we didn't need it. The issue is if the money was actually needed and it failed to end up in the recipient's hands, uh, that's a bigger issue. So taking a look at this report is merely just trying to figure out what was the reason for $38 billion going unspent. And as you mentioned, I think a lot of us can rationalize and say, okay, it's it's probably a good news story that we didn't have to spend all that money on COVID. That means we're, we're wrestling that thing to the ground. Uh, but there are a couple other things here that I guess uh, are concerning. Uh, some of it was uh, uh, defense spending, uh, and the, the rationale for that is, well, the stuff didn't get delivered. We don't pay for it until it gets here. So that, again, is, I guess in, in broader terms is a supply chain issue, I guess, when it comes to something like that. But I see what you, where you're going on this, too. Once you started to analyze where this goes, and the criticism that the Harper government got years ago when we found out about this was uh, a lot of the money that they had in surplus, quote-unquote, uh, was money that they had allocated for uh, for support services for for veterans, PTSD, et cetera. Uh, so there was I, I, you know, a hue and cry for that, like, hey, these people really needed that. How come it didn't get out the door? So we, we really do have to break this down, don't we? We do. And where you were talking about defense spending, right? I mean, this is uh, for generations. We keep talking about how the Canadian government seems to have problems with uh, defense procurement, right? That whether it's helicopters 20 years ago or, or spending today that just doesn't seem to materialize. So that's that's always a problem. Like I said, COVID was one of them. Uh, healthcare services was another area where money was allocated that ultimately didn't end up going there. But, you know, part of that, too, is we were talking a year ago or more um, about the number of people that were leaving the healthcare services. So it could be a chicken and the egg argument here that they would have stayed had the money shown up where the money didn't need to go because the people weren't there anymore working in the health services. So there's a variety of reasons why you can explain it. You've mentioned Harper a couple of times. Uh, that last year, I think the number for the Harper government was $10 billion. And that yeah. was the gnashing of teeth that, oh my gosh, how could you go uh, without spending $10 billion. And now we're talking about $38 billion. So even after accounting for inflation, it still is a pretty large number. Uh, but again, there was a lot more uncertainty in the last fiscal year than there was 10 years ago when the world just seemed nice and smooth. And even the idea of a recession then is very different than the idea of a recession now. What about the, the way government works, the, the way the way the wheels spin in a situation like this? I, I, the phrase I used, which is one I hear from an awful lot of critics, is getting the money out the door. Is it really as difficult as it seems, uh, you know, from what they promise to actually what they deliver? Yeah, I think if anybody's ever dealt with the government, even with something as small as like a, a pension check or um, employment insurance or a COVID check, it, it's it's a bit of a run through, right? There's a lot of paperwork that needs to be done. And uh, especially as the government becomes more and more concerned about auditing their figures and making sure that like every dime is accounted for uh, to avoid scandals, this is the type of thing that makes it more and more difficult. So, you know, I, I think the misconception that most Canadians have is like there's a government bank account, right? So they have an account at the CIBC that has all of these billions of dollars in it, and then it's just some sort of withdrawal. These accounts are spread all over the place and have a variety of different people that are responsible for it. Uh, and so if you think about the tens of thousands of people in government, uh, of whom thousands of them have access to government accounts, it, it can be really difficult to, to actually get this money out the door. Uh, if you're not doing the, the old Friedman helicopter drop, <laughs> it, it can be difficult. I, I mean, but that's their job, right? So they should know how to get it out the door. Uh, and when it doesn't make it there, like I said, it, it's just a matter of, okay, so why? And if it's explainable, then we move on. I, I guess, you know, when, as far as governments and, and their methodologies are concerned, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, you know, you can criticize these guys and saying, look, you know, you've too much red tape here. That's why a lot of this money didn't get out. Uh, but 
you know, for the COVID relief programs that the Prime Minister announced in the early days of the pandemic and the shutdown, basically the message there was uh, just apply and you'll get it. We'll sort it out later on. And of course, that didn't go as well as, as could have gone, um, you know, because a lot of money just, you didn't know where it was going or to whom it was going. So there's got to be a methodology here. But I guess, you know, the, the way in which they do it is it takes time. And uh, I, I guess the question when you look at a big number like this, though, is where's this money going to go now? So it goes back into the government bank account. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's going to have to be reapplied again. Now, the nice thing is that whatever legislation would have been necessary to get that money out conceivably just needs a, a little bit of fine tuning, a little bit of editing through word, and it can go through the process without too much difficulty. It's still the same government that it was a year ago. Uh, and presumably then it's mostly the same committees that should be able to get it out. I would point out, though, that even if they want to push this money back out again and just say, hey, we couldn't get to it last year, we'll get to it this year. Remember that one of the things that we've been talking about is 40-year high inflation rates. And yeah. so if this $38 billion had managed to find its way out into the economy, would we be talking about 6.3% or would we now be talking about 7.3% because of an extra $40 billion of government spending that made its way out? I, I think that Again, it's important to know why it didn't go out, but I think there's an element of relief here that I feel uh, that this would have been inflationary. And so, uh, you know, that would have been an extra, um, give or take about one and a half percent of the Canadian economy pushed out the door there. There's no question that would have had an inflationary impact. Which is one of the criticisms about government spending, that it, it adds to inflation. So I guess when we look at the inflation numbers right now, which, uh, what are we, just above 6%, I guess, uh, with the latest numbers that we saw, uh, we, we should be looking at that and saying, boy, it could have been worse if they'd spent this money. We'd, we'd really be in deep uh, doo-doo. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I'm going to give them a bit of a pass on this one then and say that, all right, whatever the reasons were, internally, you need to fix those reasons. If it was an issue on the government side that they seemed unable to get the money to the recipients and the recipients were clamoring for it, then government needs to fix itself. If it was a matter of the people who needed the money just never showed up to collect it, all right, there's nothing the government can do. I mean, you, you can push the money out the door. You can stuff it into people's pockets. But if they didn't want it, if they didn't need it, if there was no longer a reason uh, for that money, then great. That reduces the deficit. It eliminates some government spending. And if they decide that it's needed in the future, at least the money is there. And if they don't need it, then you know what? This can feed other spending, particularly on the infrastructure, which Canada always needs an upgrade to. Uh, and, and that's the way that we can see it going forward then. Well, and I know that back in the the old days, there when governments actually ran a surplus uh, under the uh, the Paul Martin days when he was finance minister, what was it eleven years? I think they had budget uh, surpluses, and and that was their methodology. It wasn't half of it went to pay down the debt, which no government likes to talk about, and the other half went into infrastructure. It can be money well spent, but once you spend it, it's gone. But how many? I guess how many times can you promise this money or or, or allocate this money? Uh, you know, over and over again. You know, we know the premiers are going to meet in Ottawa in a couple of weeks looking for healthcare money. Are, are they going to point to this 38 billion and say hey yeah let's uh let's divvy some of that up yeah uh, and again that that goes back to the idea of the belief that there's one government bank account and so whether that money goes to defense infrastructure covid checks it's all from the same bank account right and so there's a real big difference between capital spending and your your day-to-day -day spending and so if this money was allocated for some sort of capital infrastructure something that's going to last decades uh, hey, healthcare could certainly make the argument that that's the same thing then. So if you're not spending it on infrastructure or defense, then spend it over here on healthcare. But if the issue was that that was supposed to be spent on uh, equipment to, to deal with COVID, 
That's not the same thing as talking about some sort of long-term uh, spending on healthcare. Governments borrow money, though, and they don't often talk about that. But I mean, that's one of the reasons the debt runs up as high as it does when they allocate X number of millions of dollars to a certain program. You're right. They usually don't cut a check for it. They borrow it from somebody, don't they? Yeah. So when the government spends more than they bring in in taxes, then they finance it through bond issues. And so when the bonds come due, they can roll it over at either a higher or lower interest rate, depending on the market. Or they can just retire the bond because they've built up enough money that they can pay it down. It's kind of like if you think of bonds as nothing more than uh, us using a line of credit or a mortgage. So in any particular year, if we spend beyond our means, we need a way to finance it. Uh, And so it's borrowed money. But if at a later point we have enough money, we can pay some of it down. We do. Um, You know, if if the governments don't need to borrow that $38 billion, uh, then all the better. And if they have the money through taxes, then the discussion now is, all right, if you had that money through tax revenue, maybe you can talk about a tax cut as a way to try and uh, give the economy a bit of a shove during slow times like what we might be facing this year. Which again, I, I guess going back to the Harper government, the first year, that's what they actually did. They, they took that surplus money that was sitting there from the previous government and basically gave everybody a tax break and, and figured, okay, that's going to, uh, you know, as you say, enliven the the economy and get people spending again. I guess we could argue for the next three hours whether or not that's an effective strategy, but it's, a, it's usually a popular one, isn't it? Popular, yes. I mean, generally speaking, the idea is that surpluses should always be run during good times and deficits should always be run during bad times. And responsible government is that the surpluses and deficits should cancel each other out over the course of a business cycle. So, you know, if the the time is right, like we're heading into an economic slowdown, then the idea of pumping a little money into the economy isn't necessarily the worst thing that could be done. Uh, The problem that's complicating thing now, of course, is 30 year high in inflation. Fun with the numbers, as we said, uh, always interesting. And of course, the other shoe to drop here is, okay, you know, what government's uh, agencies or what, uh, you know, allocations, uh, you know, are people going to come back and say, we really could have used that dough. How come we didn't get it? And that's a debate that I guess we're going to have down the road as uh, we start to parse some of these numbers. Always great to get your perspective on this, Moshe. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime. Moshe Lander, economic lecturer at Concordia University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Should he stay or should he go? That's uh, the question that I guess uh, Mike Schreiner's uh, wrestling with these days. As we told you on the program a couple of days ago, a number of uh, prominent liberals, Ontario liberals, uh, have uh, signed on to a letter asking uh, Mr. Schreiner to uh, switch from the Green Party to the Liberals and, and run as the leader. Dr. Kate Graham, a former Ontario Liberal Party leadership candidate, is one of those veterans who signed on. And uh, she told uh, Rex Ampert on uh, Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML that, uh, well, there was a a conversation about this among many, many liberals. And and this is why they made the move. Here's the doctor. The starting point actually was an article that uh, TVO's Steve Pagan wrote. He wrote it last fall. And he said, hear me out. Mike Schreiner should run for the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. And I remember reading it for the first time thinking, what a ridiculous uh, idea that is. Uh, but it started a huge number of conversation. I felt like every time I ran into somebody in the party, it was like, well, did you read that article? And what do you think? What would that look like? What could that be? And over a couple of months, I, I mean, the, the possibility of, you know, finding opportunities to uh, grow the movement, appeal beyond the base, really focus on issues that I think Ontarians um, are, are desperate for provincial leadership on right now. All of those things led to a group of us uh, deciding to push what were a million quiet, whispery conversations way out into the public realm. 
So what are the next steps here? Well, let's find out. They'll go right to the source. Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party and MPP for Guelph, joins us uh, to talk about this uh, rather unusual circumstance. Mike, uh, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. And uh, yeah, this isn't the usual uh, circumstance that we're on the radio <laughs> together, for sure. Well, you know, it's it's always good to be wanted, uh, you know, especially politicians. You know, getting a little love coming your way is always a good thing. And that doesn't, doesn't always happen that way. But w w talk to us about this and, and where your thoughts are right now as we sit here this morning. Yeah, Bill, you know, so many people are telling me that Ontario needs bold action to stop the Ford government from destroying what so many people love about this province, our public health care system, the green belt, the farmland that feeds us, that we need urgent action on the climate crisis. And as you know, from the many times I've been on, on your show, you know, my ambition has always been to make a positive difference on these issues. I'm doing that as the leader of the Ontario Greens. And I received a letter on, on Sunday uh, from a group of liberals asking me to consider a very unique way of doing politics differently, to move forward on some shared values, to build a caring, connected, climate-ready uh, Ontario. And I just decided, after thinking about it for a day, that I wanted to open a conversation and just ask people what they think. Um, you know, ask my constituents in Guelph, my friends and colleagues in the Green Movement, you know, people across the province on the best way um, we can move forward to advance so many of the issues I care about. All right, let's let's talk about the logistics there. <clears throat> By the way, have you had any feedback from your constituents in Guelph? Yeah, you know, Bill, most of the feedback so far has been, you know, thank you for actually consulting with us. Like, you know, not everyone is as open and transparent uh, as I tend to be. That as you know, that's how I roll, Bill. And uh, so most of the feedback so far has been, you know, thanks for thanks for consulting. You know, obviously, there are some people who think it's a horrible idea. There's a lot of people who think it's a good idea. And uh, you know what? I just need some time. And when you talk about process, I'm really asking people to just give me some time to think about it and to think about how I can best advance the issues I care about. All right, you've been a, a, a strong voice during your time at Queen's Park, of course. Would you have a stronger voice if you were leading a Liberal Party as opposed to the Green Party? I mean, you are the only Green member, of course, in the legislature. You know, Bill, that's really part of the consultation process with people is how, you know, I can best amplify their voices. I mean, my philosophy has always been, you know, I, I'm the voice of a, of a grassroots movement. And, you know, so many of the issues I care about are public health care system, addressing the climate crisis, housing affordability, expanding mental health services, protecting the green belt, you know, how we together can best advance those issues. And as you know, I've always said that I do politics differently. Green values do politics differently. And, you know, this letter I received on Sunday, it really was a unique way of expressing doing politics differently. And so that is why I want to talk to people about how I can best advance the issues that so many people in this province care about. Uh, but uh, how much of a leap would this be for you? I, I remember a conversation I had years ago with Belinda Stronach, uh, who, of course, left uh, the, the Harper government across the floor to the Liberals uh, with Paul Martin. And I said, you know, what? you were conservative. Your, your father is very small-z conservative. Why did you do this? And she she pointed at, well, people like Paul Martin, John Manley, they were what they call blue liberals, uh, very fiscally responsible. And she said it made it a lot easier for me to, to say, yeah, I think I can be more of value there. Uh, would it be a leap for you to run from a Green Party to a Liberal Party? I mean, when you look at, at their goals and, and where they want to go, uh, do they match with what you would like to see? 
Well, I mean, as you know, Bill, I've uh, always said that I have no ambition whatsoever to lead uh, any other party than the Green Party. Uh, the letter I received on Sunday really challenged me to think about how I might work differently uh, to really advance the issues I care about. And, you know, one of the things, if you, you, you know, I keep talking about is we have to build a caring, connected, climate-ready province. We need a large broad coalition of people who are going to advance that. I think the Greens and my role as Green leader have made a huge difference in this province. Uh, I'm really proud of that work. And I'm consulting with Greens right now, especially, and my constituents in Guelph and people across the province about what's the best way forward to advance green values, green vision, and green policy. And, you know, I'm waiting to hear back whether people think this is a good idea or not. Uh, let's uh, have you tested the water. I want to ask you about the you've talked about the feedback you're getting from your constituents uh, and, and, of course, other members of the Green Party uh, and, and the movement that's going on in Ontario. Uh, but have you asked specifically how would you be received if you decided to do this? I mean, do the Liberals? I, I know this group certainly do. Uh, but, you know, there's there's a caucus that has to be involved in this situation, too. Have you talked to any of them? Yeah, you know, I uh, really invite uh, hearing from liberals as well. I mean, obviously, when I say talking to people, you know, it's talking to Greens, it's talking to liberals, it's talking to people who don't really identify with any political party who just want some change in Ontario and, and want a strong pushback to the Ford government's agenda. And so absolutely, I will be consulting with a wide range of folks. And the bottom line for me is I am going to make a decision on the best way I can move forward the issues I've been fighting for, climate action, housing affordability, public health care, expanding mental health services, doing politics differently. Uh, those are the things I care about. And um, and those are the things I'm going to keep fighting for. And, and so that's what's going to be part of the consultation process. I, I mean... You know, are, are you concerned? Uh, you've been in politics long enough to uh, that some people in in the Liberal Caucus or even in the Liberal Party may look at somebody like you as an interloper. I mean, I, I know some pretty high profile names signed that letter. We heard from Dr. Graham there just before you joined us. Uh, uh, Greg Sobera, former finance minister, is there. Uh, Lynn McLeod, uh, former Liberal leader. Uh, would you be welcomed with open arms in the party, or have you asked that question, or does that even concern you? You know what? I uh, that's what the consultation process is for. But, I mean, here's the bottom line. Any decision I make will be in consultation with my constituents, with my friends and colleagues in the Green Movement and people across the province, and it's going to be centered around the issues I care about, Bill. Uh, have you had any assurances in your discussions with the Liberals that uh, that they would fast-track this? I mean, they want you to be the not just a Liberal in, in, in the legislature. They want you to lead the party right now. Uh, is, is that job guaranteed, or you have to just throw your name in the hat and go through that process? Yeah, you know, I've had uh, no discussions like that. I, I received a letter on Sunday, and as you and most other political observers know, I've been saying no, no, no. Uh, to this. And, you know, what the letter spoke to me was um, they sincerely, I believe, suggested that one way of doing politics differently was to think about how Greens and Liberals could collaborate and whether me being Liberal leader would be able to advance some real shared values, you know, around building uh, a, a caring, connected, climate-ready province, addressing some shared issues 
that we're concerned about. And so part of the consultation process will be really to evaluate and ask the exact question you've just asked me, Bill. Uh, so if you set a deadline, I mean, when can we expect an answer from you? I haven't set a deadline. I just want to hear from as many people uh, as I can. And, you know, once again, it's really going to come down to what are people telling me is the best way to advance the issues I care about? Doubling social assistance rates, addressing the climate crisis, housing affordability, defending our public health care and education systems. Like those are things that's what that my ambition is driven by the issues I care about. And I want to hear from people about the best way to advance those issues. And I want to take the time to do it in a really meaningful way. Mike, we'll stay in touch. Uh, interesting times uh, in the Ontario legislature when they get back to it, and hopefully a decision sooner than later. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Hey, Bill, it's always a pleasure to be on. Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party. Well, for now, anyway, we'll see what happens in the future. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Putin apparently uh, threatened to uh, missile strike London, uh, England, yes. I know that's not where the war is supposed to be, but Boris Johnson says it happened. Uh, Putin's denying it. We'll give you some of the details on that a little bit later on this hour. Right now, though, uh, this is a story that I, I think we ought to shine the light on here because I'm just trying to understand where the the, the rationale comes for this. Uh, Canadian universities, a number of them apparently, are now conducting joint research with Chinese military scientists. Uh, and, and in light of the fact that we've just heard a number of stories now from CSIS and other uh, uh, intelligence agencies that be very careful about dealing with China, because a lot of the information, for instance, in research that's going to happen here, uh, usually gets filtered right through to the Chinese government, and it can and will be used against us, I guess. Uh, let me bring our next guest in to get some perspective on exactly what's going on and, and what the implications may be. Dr. Robert Hewish is an associate professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, Robert, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Pleasure to be here, Bill. Thanks so much. Uh, am I right to be concerned about this? I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, we let Huawei in, we've let a number of agencies in, we have basically Chinese police stations set up in some Canadian areas, which I, I just can't really get my head around. Uh, are we swimming with the sharks here when we let the, the, the Chinese military scientists in on this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is something that CSIS has been very clear on for quite some time to say that Canadian academic institutions are incredibly vulnerable to this sort of manipulation and espionage and collaboration. Like we're talking levels that do get to national security threats. And the, the writing has been on the wall for, I would say almost a decade. And I think back to, uh, you know, partnerships with Canadian, Canadian and Chinese firms that have seen vaccine development. Of course, there's the COVID case, but even the Ebola vaccine that was uh, developed in, in 2012 to 2014, that was another partnership that went sour. So there's there's a long track record of these collaborations just being uh, bad ideas from the start. And I think what we're, we're seeing very clear now, uh, and CSIS has come out, and the, the story that ran yesterday in the Globe and Mail uh, identified, what was it, 50 universities have some form of publishing collaboration with uh with the Chinese military university. And that, that, that's like unacceptable. That is, there's so much wrong with what's going on here that uh, it's hard to, to just say one individual is to blame. Can the government quickly snap their fingers and, and make it all go away? I, I think it's going to take a real serious check-in by, uh, by universities, by academics themselves, 
and just sort of say, what the, what the hell are you thinking? Why are you actively collaborating with a foreign military that is very overt on throwing its weight around the world uh, and, and not respecting uh, people's territory, thinking of the Philippines, internal human rights, thinking about the Uyghurs in the western part of China, or thinking about uh, just, just basic rights of citizenry. Uh, this is this is reckless, and I'm really scratching my head to figure out why these academics uh, who were engaging in this this research did not did not question it at any point. Well, I guess the the short answer to that is money. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of money involved in situations like this, and we know uh, that just talk to any university, and they're going to say, "Look, we don't get enough money for grants or anything for the federal government," so they go looking elsewhere, I guess, for it. But I mean, yeah. you know, the name here. Well, they call themselves this organization uh, is the National University of Defense Technology. Uh, but they're, uh-huh. they're basically intelligence agents for the Chinese government. I mean, we know that already. I'm sure the universities know it, don't they? Yeah, so let's let's peel the onion back a little bit on this. And you you hit some great points, Bill. Like federal funding is where most of university research comes from. So there's there's a, the, the Tri Council research in Ottawa uh, that does science, humanities, and social science research, and then medical science as well. So you've got the three boards there. Now, if you were to say, uh, I'd like a couple million bucks to pursue uh, research with a foreign military, uh, the 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 review board will probably not past that. And, and in fact, they, they should, there should be policies at the federal level in Ottawa that prevents that funding from going in that direction, even though most universities have uh, these offices of internationalism or, or international offices that do seek these sort of collaborations. So where it gets murky is when the foreign partner suddenly shows up with a big lump of cash and says, we know we'd like to work with you and we'll pay for all of these things. Uh, it can be, you know, some of the the, the, uh, the projects that were listed there were like space uh, space science and missiles and, uh, you know, counterintelligence, uh, uh, computer coding, this sort of thing, but it can also be very subtle. You can have uh, graduate students uh, propose to work with professors or postdoctoral students working for pre- with professors from from China who may not even be part of the uh, the, the university you, met, you mentioned there or even part of MSS, which is the the Chinese state security organ, uh, but they could be sort of told and directed to say, if you go work with this particular prof, if you go work at this particular university, uh, we will fund you to to go do it. So there's a whole bunch of ways to get the the, the dollars in there. And when you see the the appetite for uh, research money uh, in in Canada, I guess you know people are saying, well. We've got to make the lab work. We've got to worry about my own career. Here's an easy way to do it without really checking in on those those ethics questions. But the the idea in in, in China is that there's sort of the direct agents that that do sort of orchestra or organize uh, these initiatives. They're rarely positioned to work outside of the country, though, because if they get caught, then they really get caught. But they're able to put a lot of influence on Chinese academics and scientists to basically target and say, we need you to go to this location. We need you to go to this university. Can you please reach out and uh, try to make those relationships work? So it, it becomes the real sneaky way of suddenly realizing, oh my God, I'm now, I'm on a position where I'm collaborating with, uh, with, with a foreign government and giving up potentially uh, vulnerable secrets. Well, and as you say, these these are military uh, projects that they're working on right now. And they, you know, I was 
you know, being flippant when I said this, you know, the stuff they do in Canada use, will be used against you. It probably will be uh, in the South China Sea or wherever. I mean, you know, as you've done for us in the past, connect the dots here. These guys are flexing yeah. their military muscle right now, and they're doing the research for it here in Canada at universities. Uh, and, yeah, and, and I know the government is saying, well, we they go through a very strict you know, a screening process. Apparently not very strict, uh, it, as it turns out. Uh, you have to wonder just how naive we're being here. Well, I think the strictest screening process uh, available to a Canadian researcher is to call CSIS and say, hey, look, I've been approached by this person. Or, hey, look, this is suddenly wound up on my desk and it seems legitimate. Give CSIS a call and they will happily vet whoever you have been in, in contact with. Uh, and it, it costs you nothing. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very gentle experience, in fact. And what would be the harm of, of adding that extra level of, of security or rationale to it. It's, it's the situation now where if, you know, what was something, 248 publications from 50 universities. Well, now those, those authors may be, uh, you know, they may be sitting on the other end of an interview with, with CSIS. And that's not where you want to be. You want to get ahead of this stuff. And again, the, the, the state's the, the secrets and technology that, that could be developed from this. That's certainly one thing, but it's part of a bigger picture where there's the, the, the knowledge in China that Canadian universities are completely vulnerable to uh, foreign influence. And if it is by targeting a specific scientist for a specific project, if it's a vaccine, if it's batteries, if it's missile technology, great. But let's also try to create influence beyond that. Uh, and, and, you know, you can look at some of the previous CSIS reports. Uh, there have been students groups that have been set up that have had connections to China's MSS there are uh, people who come over with, you know, in social sciences, humanities, and the health sector as well. So this isn't the whole package that we're just learning about in the last couple of days. This is the scratching of the surface. And, and with you look at China's foreign policy intentions, if you are uh, someone who is sitting on a lot of resources and you want to play ball with China, the influence comes in trying to create that political favor within the country. Say, ah, oh, Beijing is not so bad, you know. But if you're Canada... Australia and New Zealand, who are sort of proxy allies to the United States, you've got a target on your back. And they're very clear about that. And, and they've already done it. I mean, there's a track record here. I mean, you, you're talking about some of the medical research that's going on. What was it, about a year and a half or so ago at a lab in Winnipeg? Uh, they had some Chinese people working there on, on COVID vaccines and, and variations of. Uh, and they just filled their briefcases one night and hopped a plane to Beijing. And we still don't know what they took. The government's being very quiet about exactly just how in-depth that was. But uh, it, we should be learning from those mistakes, shouldn't we? We should, and it's going to be a steep learning curve because, like you say, there's the, the the shadowy character with the briefcase and the airline ticket, like right out of James Bond. That that's that's exactly what happened. You've also got other cases where you know partnerships for vaccines uh, for another COVID vaccine uh, just fell through, and when China just refused to to send the materials back to Canada, customs in China just held it within countries and said, "No, we're not going to share this anymore." So there's all sorts of levels of of problems that can come up with this from you know, high-level state secrets to, to just write down how does this impact the Canadian economy. If there's Canadian researchers that are developing, say, technologies and batteries for electronic vehicles, and we are sharing those technologies overseas at a time when we're, we're looking at reinventing and re, re-approaching the automobile industry, that's, that's just dumb. Uh, that doesn't help that doesn't help the, the national cause in any way. So there's all sorts of levels to it. And, you know, the question is, who can who can make this change happen real quick? Uh, can the federal government do much about it? Well, they've already got 
the funding restrictions for Canadian money being used for these sort of collaborations, that's already checked there. So as long as the committees are doing their work, that in theory shouldn't happen. Of course, you could tighten that up a little bit more. The next area would be to look at would be some more scrutiny to foreign money coming into the country. What are these strings attached? Uh, you know, these are things that will have to be on the backs of university administrators and also on professors themselves. Uh, you know, there's there's a, there's a lot of opportunities for successful profs to to go around the world, to to travel, to collaborate, to do very innovative work. But if the golden ticket just seems a little too shiny, it's okay to ask questions about it and say no. And uh, despite the funding cuts that that are at every Canadian university, uh, there has to be that common sense that comes into the equation, and not just as the professor who I didn't know I was collaborating with the Chinese military. Uh, I wish the federal government had stopped me from doing that. That doesn't wash, man. You've got you to step up and say that there are security issues here that should be part of your career t- trajectory. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that, that's me speaking to someone who, uh, in my own past, have said, no, I'm not collaborating with this, this, this crew over here. This is too smelly. And, and I've stepped back. And I, don't, I hope other profs would do that in the future, too. Well, there's, I'm sure you're aware of the organization. It's called the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council, who's you know a federal funding agency. Uh, and, and actually, the, the ex-head of that is simply saying, guys, you, you, you're taken here. Uh, and there's, the penalty, as you mentioned, is, okay, you're not going to get federal money. Well, that doesn't much matter to them because there's always other sources to get that money. But this, this, you know, the, the intelligence is still going out the door. Uh, yeah. it's, this is on the government though, isn't it? I mean, they, they've got to come down here and say, look at you guys, you're not going to do this anymore. You, those people are not welcome in those laboratories and not welcome to do this research. Yeah. I mean, it, there's, there's, it's hard to, in one sense, to, to trust the, the public to, to sometimes do the right thing. Uh, and that's very much the case when it comes to national security issues, that there needs to be some very hard lines drawn to say, don't cross that. And, you know, as much as we would hope that in intelligent and ethical people would make the right choices, often it comes out that they don't. So one of the things that the government could do, and I think this is a very, very easy step, would be to to build better relations between our intelligent agency, CSIS, and Canadian universities. And right now it's sort of like this this mystical relationship where, oh, are they watching us? And, and what, what is what is the role? It's, it's like a Bond film, you know? And really what CSIS can do, and they've got the tools and resources there, is to vet any, any partners that could bring a national security threat in. So as opposed to, you know, down the road, uh, it's, it's, it's too late. We've, we've collaborated with, with the wrong team, and now there's consequences to make that part of the process or at least bring awareness to the university that that option's available uh, to, to create that sort of screening. I, I know that there will be a, a quick reaction to say, well, is that discriminatory? Are we going to be, uh, you know, putting, uh, putting some sort of, uh, you know, xenophobia against, against Chinese citizens? Well, no, not, that's not the case. Uh, this is this is trying to get around uh, industry and military from taking advantage over over national security. So I, I think there's a way to to make that a more acceptable approach in terms of the vetting. Well, exactly. And uh, and by the way, we mentioned the federal government has not done much about this. If anything, uh, the universities themselves, of the fifty that they listed, none of them uh, have suggested this is a problem. So I. I uh, it just flabbergasts me that th- this sort of thing would be going on in light of the information we have. Uh, great to get your perspective on this, though, Robert. Thank you for spending some time with us this morning. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks very much for, for covering this one.
Thank you. Uh, Professor Hewish, of course, uh, is with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.